Have you noticed how virtually all of the people who run for the office of President of the United States try to convince us that they are one of us? They understand us. They come from the same place that we come from. They have gone through the same kinds of difficulties and things that we have gone through. They claim to have insight into the plight of the common person. And this is true for all political parties. There's not only one or the other. They, they all do the same kind of thing, make the same kinds of claims. But very few, if any of them, would be considered a common person. Nearly all of them are millionaires or more, grew up in the lap of privilege, attended the best private colleges, live lives of luxury that you and I can only dream about, and so forth. None of that necessarily disqualifies any of these people from being the President of the United States. It's, it's just what it is. Now, why do I bring that up? Well, I want to assure you, it's, it's not my intention to rain on anyone's parade for their chosen political candidate. Instead, it's to highlight that we have a God and Savior who, though being the very creator of the universe, stepped down from his place of power and privilege and truly became one of us, truly became one of us to save us. Philippians 2.6 it says, who, being in very nature God, talking about Jesus, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, we looked at that passage a few weeks ago. It says, since the children have flesh and blood, he, Jesus, too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted." Now, when we looked at this passage a few weeks ago, we made the observation that if Jesus, being God the Son, had not descended into the depth of humanness, then in our minds, he would be remote, distant, untouchable. In our minds, he would lack a certain kind of understanding and compassion for us in our condition as human beings. We would see him as a disconnected deity with no real interest in us in our lives. But Jesus, he became one of us. He became a real human being. And in becoming a human being and suffering as a human being, he identified with us in a way that only that experience could have provided. He's able to empathize with us 
in our, in our difficulties in a uniquely personal way because he himself suffered through the same kind of difficulties that we do. By doing that, he demonstrated his love for us in a profound way. He left his glory and privilege and comfort as God the Son, and he came down into our reality, and he walked among us, he lived among us, he suffered among us, he died among us as a human being. John 1.14, it tells us the Word, talking about Jesus, the Logos, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And as it says in verse 18 of Hebrews 2, because Jesus became one of us and suffered for us, he's able to help us. Well, as we continue our study now of the letter of Hebrews today, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. So if you have your Bible, you can make your way over to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. And this passage that we'll look at today is really a continuation of this passage at the end of Hebrews chapter 2. Again, talking about Jesus being uniquely able to be our great high priest. So Hebrews 4.14, it says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We're now entering into the largest section of the letter of Hebrews, which ranges from 4.14 all the way to chapter 10, verse 18, where the author, he compares Jesus as priest to the office and the role of the priests of the old religious system established in the days of Moses, referred to as the Old Covenant, highlighting how much better Jesus is. The author of Hebrews has already told us in the letter that Jesus is greater than the prophets. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. And now he's going to show us that Jesus is greater than the priests and the associated religious system of the Old Covenant. So let's take a look now at this passage, beginning in verse 14. It says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Jesus is our great high priest. Now, before diving into the content of this verse, I want to give some background information about the high priest. Under the old religious system, the old covenant, what that was established in the days of Moses and then followed by the Jewish people for centuries, the priest served as the mediator between God and people. He served as the go-between or the middle person. He represented the people before God and he represented God before the people. A major part of the priest's duties was to make offerings and perform various rituals at the tabernacle that were specified under this covenant provisions of the Old Covenant. 
The high priest served a special role even among the priests. He was the only one allowed to enter the innermost room of the tabernacle called the Most Holy Place or the Holy of Holies. And that only once a year on the Day of Atonement with very specific duties and things to be done. Here's a cutaway drawing of the tabernacle tent showing the front room called the Holy Place and the back interior room called the Most Holy Place or the Holy of Holies. And inside the Most Holy Place was the Ark of the Covenant which is pointed out in this second cutaway drawing of the tabernacle. It's in that most holy place. The lid of the Ark of the Covenant was called the atonement cover or the mercy seat, which had two cherubim angels with outstretched wings towards its center. And this was considered the throne of God. It represented God's throne among us. Now, this, just for a quick pop culture reference for those of you who are wondering, yes, this is the Ark that's featured in the Indiana Jones movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark. So yes, that, this is it. This is the real one, not the Hollywood one that we're talking about, though. The Day of Atonement was the most solemn and holy day of the year for the Jewish people it was the day that the high priest presented sacrifices to the Lord to atone for the sins of himself and the people. Sacrifices for sin were presented at the tabernacle throughout the year, but on this day, a special sacrifice was presented for all of their sins. Atonement was even made for the most holy place and all of the articles in the tabernacle tent itself. This was the annual grand solemn day of atonement and cleansing of everything. In addition to the sprinkling of atonement blood at the tabernacle, there was the ceremony of the two male goats that was performed on the day of ceremony. One goat was sacrificed at the tabernacle as part of the atonement sacrifices, and then the high priest placed his hands on the head of the other goat and confessed all of the sins of the people, symbolically placing their sins on that goat. The goat was then led outside of the camp into the wilderness and released, symbolizing the removal and the carrying away of their sins. Leviticus chapter 16 describes these procedures and ceremonies that the high priest carried out on the Day of Atonement, for those of you who are interested. Jesus Christ is our high priest. He's our representative before God. He's the one who has gone into the most holy place of the real tabernacle in heaven and offered his own blood as the atoning sacrifice for our sins and obtained eternal redemption for us. Hebrews 9.11 it says, but when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, 
but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Hebrews 4.14, it says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest. The author, in referring to Jesus as our high priest, he adds the word great. Great high priest. Highlighting the superiority of Jesus over all priests who have ever preceded him. The Greek word translated into English as great is mega, which most of us, probably all of us, recognize that word. And I actually think that mega is a more descriptive and effective word for conveying the author's intent here, actually. Jesus Christ is literally our mega high priest. Jesus is better as a priest in every conceivable way. He's better at both representing us before God and representing God before us. First, Jesus is the perfect, sinless human being able to stand before God on our behalf, not needing to atone for his own sins, and actually offers himself as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then second, Jesus is able to represent God to us in all of his fullness, since Jesus is God. Hebrews 1.3 says Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Says, who has ascended into heaven. The priests under the Old Covenant could not even enter the inner room of the tabernacle, the most holy place, where the representation of God's throne sat, the Ark of the Covenant. A special exception was made, though, once a year on the Day of Atonement when the high priest was allowed to enter into that most holy place, to offer atonement for his sins and the sins of the people. That room was only occupied once a year by one particular individual. But Jesus, our great mega high priest, in contrast, is continually in the actual presence of God representing us. says, Jesus, the Son of God. says, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God. We can become so accustomed to the idea that Jesus is the Son of God that it can lose its punch of profound truth for us. But this is a very big deal. We don't have just anyone representing us before God in heaven. Our great high priest happens to be the Son of God. Imagine the kind of pull that he has with his dad. That's who's looking out for us. It says, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess the Greek word translated as hold firmly, it means literally to cling to tenaciously, to seize it and fasten onto it. The image that comes to mind for me is the kind of grip that my bulldog would get hold of on a rope that I used to play with him. 
I mean, I, I used to dangle this big, thick rope in front of my dog, Cannon, and he would take hold of that rope in his teeth, and he wouldn't let go of it for anything. I mean, I could literally swing him around in the air <laughs> as he hung on to that rope. That's the kind of grip the word I have on Jesus. So pulling these ideas together, verse 14 says, because our great mega high priest who represents and intercedes for us is the very son of God and has unhindered access to the actual presence of God, let's take hold of him with a bulldog grip and never let go because it doesn't get any better than that. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. The author dispels the idea that Jesus is too remote to really care about our needs. Someone might say, well, Jesus is God, so how can he relate to us? And the author reminds us that Jesus is a real human being who fully experienced being a human being. Hebrews 2.17 says he was fully human in every way. He says he can empathize with our weaknesses. Now, some English translations translate the Greek as empathize, and some translate it as sympathize. Empathy means, or means to experience someone else's feelings as if they were your own. Sympathy means to understand someone else's suffering or situation. Well, Jesus does both. He empathizes and he sympathizes. And the Greek word captures that larger encompassing idea. The Greek word translated weaknesses was actually a common word used to refer to illness in ancient days, but it was also used in a figurative way to mean weakness, inability, helplessness, limitation, and that's how it's being used here. Jesus Christ, he understands, feels, experiences the limitations, the weaknesses, the frustrations, the sufferings of being human. In other words, he fully understands and has lived the human experience. Now, people are not always able to or willing to empathize and sympathize with our weaknesses. Why? Well, because they have the same weaknesses that we do. Our weaknesses are compassion, our patience, our kindness, our capacity to forgive have limits. We're all weak in that way. Jesus, on the other hand, is able to empathize and sympathize with our weaknesses in a deeper, more compassionate way than any other person can because although he empathizes with our weaknesses, he doesn't have the same weaknesses that we do. 
which would limit his empathy. Look at what is said in the next verse, or in the next part of the verse. It says, we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus faced the same kinds of temptations and difficulties and trials and tests that we face. And in that way, he's just like us. But he overcame all of it. He never sinned. He never failed. He never came up short. He never gave in. Now, it's important for us to understand that his sinlessness here is not put before us as a guilt-inducing challenge. It's not saying, Jesus didn't sin, so you need to get your act together and be like Jesus. That's, that's not what's being said. Instead, his sinlessness is put before us here as an encouragement that in the vast sea of humanity, of weak and damaged and broken people, which we are all among, there is one who has stood tall under every assault brought against him, and he never failed or faltered, and he did it all for us. He's our hero who has come to help us. His ability to overcome everything is why he's able to help us in a way that no one else can. If he suffered from the same weaknesses that we do, then he'd be able to empathize and sympathize with us. He'd be able to feel really bad for us. But he wouldn't be able to do anything about it. But that's the wonderful thing here is that he isn't weak like we are. He's strong and powerful, and he offers his strength and power to help us. Jesus is the God-man. He's not just one with amazing insight and understanding into the human experience. He also possesses the power to do something about it for us. That makes him uniquely valuable for us. Now, someone might say, well, you know, that... Jesus was so innately good that he didn't really have any difficulty with temptation. Here's what C.S. Lewis wrote about that kind of thinking. I think it's very insightful. He wrote, No person knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A person who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That's why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They've lived a sheltered life, always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only person who never yielded to temptation, is also the only person who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. Verse 16. Hebrews 4 says, let us then 
approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Our Jewish brothers and sisters at the time Hebrews was written would have been awestruck with such a statement. They had grown up under the Old Covenant, which was full of ceremony and symbolism and teaching that beat into their heads that they could not approach the Holy God of the Covenant. Following Jesus is very different. We're invited to approach, to come near. Let us then approach God's throne of grace. A throne represents power and authority and superiority and separateness. It's designed to produce intimidation and fear in the subjects. But look at the main characteristic of this throne, grace. This throne is where God's loving, generous favor is freely given. And how are we to approach this unique and amazing throne of grace? With confidence. Confidence, boldness, without fear or intimidation. With trust, with courage, free of doubt. We're to approach this throne in the opposite way that a throne was normally to be approached. Rather than coming before this throne with our head down, afraid, trembling, unsure of ourselves, intimidated, groveling, hoping not to catch the king on a bad day and have our head cut off. We're to approach with our head up, at peace full of joy, convinced of our Heavenly Father's love for us, fully expecting to receive a warm welcome and embrace from Him. That's approaching with confidence. And what can we expect to receive at God's throne of grace? Mercy and grace to help us. Mercy, compassion, and kindness. Grace, goodness, blessing, love, freely given. It's vitally important that we not see God in the same way that we see people. We, we have a tendency to make God into our image with the same characteristics and shortcomings that we have, but that's a false image of God. We don't always receive mercy and grace from people. People give paybacks. They take revenge. They hold resentments. They can be petty and selfish and mean. They're not always willing to forgive. And that's not how God is. And what changes the throne of God? from a fearsome seat of judgment, dispensing punishment into a throne of grace, dispensing mercy and grace to help us. What changes it? Our great mega high priest, Jesus Christ. He's the one who's earned us a place before holy God as his precious child. 
Jesus Christ understands us more fully than anyone, including ourselves. We're a mystery to ourselves, aren't we? But he knows what we struggle with. He knows our repeated failures. He knows about our foolish compromises that we make in our life. He knows about the lies that we tell ourselves. He knows about the darkness in us. He knows what we're afraid of. He knows our insecurities. He knows our heartbreaks. He knows everything. And he says to us, come to me. Let me help you. Is Jesus Christ your mega high priest? Have you received him as your savior, asking him to come into your life and forgive your sin and put his new life in you? Draw near to him. Ask him into your life. Change the direction of your life by quitting living for yourself and start following Jesus instead. You know, you're not going to do it perfectly. None of us can. None of us do. But see, we don't depend on our own goodness. We depend on him, our great high priest, Jesus. Amen. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you for our mega high priest, Jesus Christ, who represents us before you and who represents you before us. I pray, Lord, that the the profound truth of who Jesus is and what he is doing for us continually would settle on our hearts would give us the confidence, Lord, to approach your throne of grace to receive mercy and grace to help us. We thank you for your invitation, Lord. We thank you for your promise to help us. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.